Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. There are certain threats that we don't perceive and certain threats that we do. So because to recognize that the toxification of the entire planet has led to an increase in cancers, we have to not recognize that those cancers are coming from the toxification of the total environment. That's the voice of author Derek Jensen. In this week's show, we speak to Derek about the COVID-19 outbreak and society's response and some contradictions in how society handles crisis. Stay tuned. You're listening to Latin Waves. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson. I'm delighted this evening to be joined by Derek Jensen. He's a prolific author, the author of many wonderful books, including Endgame, Monsters, The Myth of Human Supremacy, and many others. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's always such a, a delight to be on your show. Now... I guess like most people, um, you know, we are immersed in a moment of fear and panic. And it would seem like a repeat from not so long ago. You know, we were hearing about the collapse of the capitalist system and someone said, you know, it's just it's just a cyclical um you know, glitch in the economy. And then we heard of all the fires, and then, and now we have a pandemic. So in, the, in a culture where it seems fear is very productive, I wonder if we could um, maybe share your um, explorations, how are you not only monitoring uh, how our society is being shaped by this moment, but also... What grounds you in times like this? Well, as always, it's a really wonderful question. And there are a couple of directions that, that I would like to go with this. One of them is um, somebody sent me something the other day that was written by C.S. Lewis uh, back 72 years ago about living in the atomic age. And this was written in 1948. Uh, um, and so I want to read this, and it, it, uh, we can just substitute coronavirus for, for atomic bomb, and it, it really works. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote in 1948. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply... Why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you're already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madame, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had, indeed, one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. 
It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Um, so that's the first thing, is that this is, as scary as it may be, it's life, you know? And um, last 2018, my mom you know, got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and she was dead. And she felt the pain in March. She got the diagnosis in May and was dead by November. And that's life. And that's very hard, but it's life. And so that's, that's one thing. A another direction is um, the first thing that I had published in a major magazine, in a huge magazine, was in the New York Times Magazine in 1995 or 1996. And it was a short piece about how there was an epidemic among bees, honeybees in North America at the time of, I don't remember if it was varroa or tracheal mites, um, but it had swept the country and was killing hives. And that's when I got out of beekeeping around that time. And one of the things I talked about was how any sort of pandemic like this was really inevitable because you have tremendous concentration of beehives in the Central Valley of California for pollinating, especially almonds. You have half a million or a million, I don't know the numbers, a lot of beehives in one place, in one county, just Modesto County. And then these bees are moved around from county to county to follow the blooms. And then in the summer, some of them will go all the way as far east as North Dakota. And meanwhile, you have other bees in North Dakota that the beekeepers take them down to Florida for the winter. And so the point is that you have this high concentration that will lead to the mites going just hive to hive to hive, and then you move them up to North Dakota, then you have a concentration and they go hive to hive, and other hives are then moved down to Florida, and you've covered the entire country within a year. And so when you have high concentrations and high mobility, you're, you're creating a circumstance that's just absolutely just perfect for pandemic. If I were a virus or a bacteria and I were trying to design a factory farm for humans, I couldn't do a better job than a major city where you've got people packed in really tight and, you know, hanging together on subways and all packed in in department stores and, or wherever it is they're packed in. And then you add to this jet transportation I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing that this does happen almost every year, as it did in, you know, like you said, in, in London several hundred years ago. And so the, the question for me is not, you know, sort of if something like this is going to happen, but how often? And I'm surprised it doesn't happen a lot more often. I guess those are the first, the, my first couple comments. Thank you so much, by the way, for sharing that beautiful reading. And also... I just want to say I'm sorry about your mother. For me, I, I feel that in moments like this, 
fear is very productive. So I want to talk about that. How productive is fear? Why we hear constant broadcasting of, you know, case by case, moment by moment of the people who are dying, right? When I know that more than 3,000 people will die from poverty today. And, you know, no one's talking about that. So we're talking about a pandemic that has something like 0.8% of affecting, you know, the, the chances of someone who's already got a compromised immune system to perish from it versus addressing other root causes that are in part because we are so distant from even our own nature, our own sense of nature, that we ourselves are nature. It's a perplexing question that, that I've been asking for, for decades, literally, about why and how we attend. We culturally, socially, collectively attend to some threats and move very quickly, and other threats we don't move very quickly at all. And one of the best examples, or two of the best examples I can think of for that are, you know, in the United States, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, mailed off some bombs that killed, I don't know, four people, five people. And that's, you know, that's, that's terrible that they died. The, the response, however, has been that in the United States, ever since then, they changed the rules such that um, if you're mailing something that weighs more than a pound or so, you can't just put stamps on it and drop it in the post box. You have to either use a a mail meter that is tied to you, or you have to walk into the post office. And so that was the response to a threat that killed four people was immediate and changed changed how everybody had to do it. And another great example would be the Tylenol killer who put some cyanide, I think it was, into some Tylenol capsules, killed, I don't know how many people, 9, 10, 12, and... As a response, um, now there is tamper-proof or tamper-evident uh, tops on everything. And I am not complaining about those responses at all. I'm just saying that they responded very, very quickly and with great expense to those particular threats. Oh, a great example is um, I used to live in North Idaho, and there's a town called Smelterville. And at one point, the bag house burned on the, the smelter and the bag house was a pollution control device so the people running this the the, the the people who ran the company there are handwritten minutes from their notes as they as they had a meeting about this where they decided whether to shut down the smelter as long as it took to fix the to fix the bag house or whether to run the smelter poison everybody in the community with lead and then pay off the lawsuits. And you can see the handwritten testimony or handwritten, not testimony, but handwritten notes from one of the, the board members saying that they thought that the lawsuits would cost about, quote, 500000 per kid. And the children in that community ended up with some of the highest blood lead levels ever recorded in human beings. And tundra swans, um, coming through have been poisoned by lead poisoning because of, of the lead in the region from that. And so normally, this is the thing that I, I've, I have found quite interesting, or interesting is too distant, 
quite something, I don't know what's the right word, about the response, the collective response to this particular threat has been to basically slam the economy. And that's created some cognitive dissonance for me because when, when, when has this culture ever valued human life, much less non-human life, over the health of the economic system? There's this great line by Frederick Winslow Taylor from 100 and some years ago that in the past, the man was first, excuse the sexist language, in the future, the system shall be first. And I mean, that's been true all along, that the, the health of the system is more important than the health of, of people. And so, as I said, there's been some tremendous cognitive dissonance. I've had some tremendous cognitive dissonance over not really understanding how they were so willing so quickly to shut down so much economic activity. Unless the system itself requires that shutdown in order to be yeah, revamped. You know, in 2008, we saw the economic collapse and we saw an unprecedented act by the so-called liberal party in the U.S., the Democratic Party. You know, Barack Obama did what no other president had done, gave the entire GDP of the United States to the banks to save the banks. And we've been talking about how cyclical these economic downturns are, but we have never recovered from 2008. And so, well, we haven't really recovered since 1973. Exactly. I mean, that's when, that's when in the United States at least, that's when real wages were at their highest. And this all, of course, is, is, is a part of the end of empire and a part of the end of the oil age. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. But, but so, the, so I think you bring a very important question. Like, why, when has it been that they've placed people's lives ahead of the economy? And perhaps they're not. In many ways, here in Canada, the first bailouts were for the oil industry and the banks. You know, and then the government has made some announcements of relief for people, but there's a lot of things they have to, you know, there's a lot of boxes they have to fill in and in order to qualify. So how much of that would really go to the people? We don't know yet. So uh, uh, thank you for all that, and thank you for your, as always, wonderful commentary and analysis. And there's a few things come to mind. One of them is that is a real crisis going on. I was just talking to a friend of mine a couple of days ago who's a, a doctor, uh, and he was telling me about a nursing home in a suburb of the metropolitan area in which he lives where 40% of the residents of the nursing home are dead from this, this current crisis. That's not 40% are sick, that's 40% are dead. And um, there are... And again, pandemics are real. I mean, that they, they happen. Yes. And then that's the first thing. And the second thing is that I think one of the things that I have been able to bring, one, one piece of analysis that I've been able to bring is the recognition that the sort of dynamics that play out in interpersonal, abusive interpersonal relationships can also be talked about on the larger scale. And something I've noticed in abusive interpersonal relationships is that abusers are pretty relentless. And I, I think about it like a, like a ratchet. And no matter what happens, they will push their agenda. So if something good happens, 
then they find a way to use that to their advantage. And if something bad happens, they use that, they find a way to use that to their advantage. And, you know, Naomi Klein wrote about that with disaster capitalism, how, um, with the shock doctrine, that, um, you know, when there is some sort of shock to the system, they'll use that to tighten the screws. And, and I think that, that when you have a certain mindset that leads you toward how can I better exploit, when that is who you are, then you will find every advantage to, to move in that direction. And then the third thing I want to, I want to say is that you've mentioned a couple times, you know, nature and that our separation from nature is illusory. And, and one of the things that we need to, that needs to be, that needs to be brought into all this is that uh, humans have greatly overshot carrying capacity and, one of the things that happens when you overshoot carrying capacity is nature finds a way to bring a balance back. And that's not really going to happen here because, because the numbers are actually so small and um, there are 220,000 additional births every day over death. So the population of the Earth goes up 220,000 every day. This, this ties back to the Tylenol thing I was saying before, that that one of the central motivations of this culture is that we have to be masters of all. And there are certain threats that we don't perceive and certain threats that we do. So because to recognize that the toxification of the entire planet has led to an increase in cancers, we have to not recognize that those cancers are coming from the toxification of the total environment. As opposed to... um, if some wacko puts some poison, so here's, here's what I'm trying to say. If, if an entire culture of wackos puts poison, six billion pounds of pesticides, onto the planet every year, and some people die because of that, many, many people die of that, well, we don't even think about it because that's how the system works. It has to be done for the system. But if some wacko puts poison into nine, into nine capsules and kills nine people, then we have to respond very quickly to that. And likewise, if you know X number of people die from from things that are side effects of the system, then we have to ignore them. But if one tenth of X number of people die because of something that is from nature, that needs to get our immediate attention. How we see the world affects how we walk upon the world, you know. And um, when I was growing up, we I grew up in in the rural area with no electricity, no running water, and that was just life. We accepted that that was life, you know. As I grow up, and I understand that a lot of this are not just accidents, you know. That there's an economic um, and a political aspect to health it's not just some people are healthy and some people are just not healthy they're you know lucky right so my my heart always wanders back to flow you know when i think of the river of my childhood which we depended on for just about everything you know um the river died without flow once it was dammed one too many times the water just simply stopped coming and so without this flow without this life force um, 
is you know all the precedes all the follows is death right you don't see the crops growing you can water them so you won't see food and so in a world where we've been constantly and slowly and not so slowly sometimes poisoning the land exploiting and robbing every energy that it has to offer us um, we have put ourselves in the at a point where we've allowed so much via privacy, you know, all this um, many ways that we have become extractivists of, of life. Um, it's, it's become where we live now. And so I wonder, is there a way to turn back? Do we, are we able to turn back? And how do we find our, our way back now that we've wandered off so far? Well, we will eventually be living in connection with the land, or we won't be living at all, because it's the only way to live. And will we find our way back voluntarily? I doubt it. I wish. Um, but we will. And you, you bring up another thing, too, with the, the death of the river. There's, I, am, I am still devastated by the, the, the loss of my mother and... You know, I was her sole caretaker for a long time, and uh, and we had a very close relationship. And I think a lot about a book I read a couple years ago by Charles Frazier, who wrote Cold Mountain. The book is called Thirteen Moons, and in this novel, it's it's basically a love story between a man and a woman, and that love story was okay, but. The thing I loved about the book that, that made it a wonderful, wonderful book for me was the love story between the protagonist and the land. And it was set between 1820 and 1900 in North Carolina. And it's the, the love that the primary character has for the land is just overwhelming. And also between 1820 and 1900, the land was destroyed by this culture. And um, it starts with there are still a lot of wolves everywhere. The buffalo have just been exterminated. And by the end, he's, he's living next to a railroad that every day brings trees east for timber and takes tourists west. And he sits there, and when the train goes by, he shoots at it. And um, there's a, a speech he gives, or uh, an internal monologue that he gives near the end that just absolutely blew me away. And it was that, he was an 80-year-old man who has lost everyone he loves, and he's talking about how this is how life is, is you know, that, that you lose your parents, and you lose your lover, and you lose your friends, and that's just life, you know, and this, in a normal community, we would see this. It is normal and a part of life, and this is as true for for bears as it is for humans, as it is for chimpanzees, as it is for elephants, that, that the, you know, the old ones die, and each of us every day takes you know, one step closer to our own death. And that's, that's fine. That's part of life. And we evolved to, to be able to, to grieve that and to deal with it. But what we didn't evolve, he says, we didn't evolve to live. Okay, what I'm trying to get at is that for me, my mother was a strong source of stability. And, you know, no matter what else happened in my life, my mom was there. And that anchor is gone. And 
it doesn't matter if it was my mom or if it was would have been my father, which it wasn't, or it doesn't matter if it's your 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 lover, it doesn't matter because because humans die. It doesn't matter if it's your kid because your kid could get scarlet fever and die. But he said, we need constancy in our lives. This is one reason that, that so many people go to church, because there is that constant. But he said, what is really constant, what's supposed to be constant, how we evolved with our constancy was the land. But in your case, what was supposed to be there forever and ever and ever for everyone in the community was the river. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, your parents may die, your friends may die, eventually you die, but what remains is the river. I live in a forest, and a tree falls down, and other trees come up, but the forest remains. We did not evolve to grow up in a place and then have the place itself die. And that is an emptiness that is, that is literally unbearable. You know, we do need that solidity somewhere in our lives. And without it, we are, I mean, adrift, which, which we see all around us. Um, so that's where I think we will need to eventually get when the world is no longer being killed, but that's not going to happen as long as industrial civilization is still around. Um, but that for me is something I think about whenever I think about death. I always think about that, 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 that Charles Frazier put that so beautifully. I mean, it breaks my heart and it breaks it, it. That's what it does. It breaks everyone in the community's heart when this river, which has been there, that's why the village was there in the first place, right? Because of the river. And when the river is gone, that has destroyed the entire community. Derek, I could talk to you for days. Thank you so much. You're so amazing. Well, you're amazing too. And let's do it again soon. Yes. Thank okay, you again. Okay, sounds great. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.